got about halfway through chapter 44 last time. And you remember we blew through about three chapters last time because most of it was reading blueprints. And as I said at the time, and I will say one more time just to make sure I've said it lots of times, if I were in the job of cutting stone to make the temple, this would be really important to me to know every detail. But right now, reading through the blueprints is not terribly enlightening. Although the dimensions we're going to get here tonight are fairly enlightening. So we got through the details of the construction of what I believe is the Millennial Temple. The commentaries that I read call it the Millennial Temple, so I'll go with that. And the reason that I think it's the Millennial Temple, as opposed to New Heaven and New Earth or something like that, or the temple in Jerusalem that's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist, is because sacrifices are still operational, but the division of the land and everything is radically different. So, Ezekiel 44, starting in verse 15. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary, when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. We talked about this last time. This is all after the regathering of Israel, which means that you got a whole bunch of people that have entered into major sin and been sent into exile. All of Israel has been scattered, and they've been scattered for good reason, because they couldn't govern themselves in a way that was pleasing to God. So God put them under the Assyrians, put them under the Babylonians, put them under whomever. So now they're all back, and there's still a major guilt trip involved here. One of the things that he said last time is go back to the exiles in Babylon among whom you're prophesying, show them this temple that is going to be, and that will shame them. The other thing that it said as we're going through this is the Levites really fell down on the job, which is why Israel went into exile. They weren't teaching Torah, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Hence, I had to exile the whole nation So when we come back, the Levites are going to be in the millennial temple, but they are going to have menial jobs. They're going to get to slaughter the animals and clean up the blood and sweep the place out and that kind of stuff, but they don't get to come into the holy place. And that's as a result of the fact that they fell down on the job, which caused people to be exiled. And then the same thing happens to the priests, everybody except the descendants of Zadok. And we talked about that last time. Zadok was a priest at the time of David. He remained faithful through everything. And you had other priests that sort of fell away and fell into apostasy and went with rebels and so forth, but Zadok stayed faithful. And so Zadok and his descendants are going to be the ones that are going to minister as priests in that temple. And he says, they'll offer to me the fat and the blood, which, as I had said last time, 
The fact that we're still doing animal sacrifices there indicates that this is certainly not new heaven and new earth. Verse 16, they shall enter my sanctuary and they shall approach my table to minister to me and they shall keep my charge. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waist. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. I don't know what that means, but I will tell you there is a movie reference to that. You've all seen, maybe, the original Matrix. The original Matrix is actually very biblical, obviously in many ways an allegory, but one of the things that they have is they have these agents, if you will, who are agents of whoever's running the matrix, an AI kind of a thing. And these, of course, have human form and they interact with the people and you can't tell an agent from a person until they do something agent-y, whatever that is. But there's one scene in there where an agent is interrogating Morpheus, and Morpheus is sweating and so forth. It's one of the things I can't stand about being in your part of the world is I can't stand your smell. And every time I read this passage here in Ezekiel, where don't wear anything that causes sweat, that scene just always comes back to me. I have no idea, but this very detailed, you'll make sure that you don't wear anything that causes you to sweat. And the only reason I can think of that is because when people sweat, they smell. Which is why that scene in the movie comes back to me. So verse 19. And when they go out into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments, lest they communicate holiness to the people with their garments. They shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. So, neatly dressed and no sweat. And by the way, this neatly groomed is in Leviticus. The business about sweat is not in Leviticus. You're dressed only in linen and not sweating is unique here. 21. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. And again, that obviously goes back to Leviticus, where Nadab and Avihu, at the inauguration of the wilderness tabernacle, got overly enthusiastic and brought unauthorized fire before the Lord, and the Lord responded in kind and toasted them. And then immediately after that, usually the instructions to Aaron go through Moses. This time they go direct from God to Aaron. And God tells Aaron, when you come into the sanctuary, do not be drunk. Don't have wine on your breath when you come into the sanctuary. So everybody assumes that what happened with Nadab and Abihu is they were hitting the sacramental wine because it was a big celebration. The tabernacle had started, you had the presence of God in the camp, everybody was happy, celebrating and so forth, and the speculation is they were hitting the communion wine had a little too much to drink, and had a lapse in judgment. So the instruction here in Ezekiel is exactly the same as the instruction back in Leviticus. 
You don't come into the presence of God tipsy. Same thing with marriage. The marriage of a priest whom he can marry is exactly the same as Leviticus. 22. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. Now notice that the women that they marry do not have to be Levites, just an Israelite. So it is not the case that they have to marry within their tribe. They shall teach my people the difference between holy and common, and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall act as judges, and they shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts, and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. We've talked about this lots and lots of times. Clean and unclean and holy and common are orthogonal axes. So clean and unclean, to horn to my, are things that cannot come into the presence of God. In fact, the signature characteristic is they bear markers of death. So you have all sorts of things that are unclean, and the reason for that is they're markers of mortality, if you will. In other words, they're reminders that we're mortal as opposed to being immortal like we were intended to be. And then common and holy are things that are consecrated or not. So you can have a sheep standing there. That sheep can either be common or it can be holy, depending on whether or not it's been dedicated to God. So if it's been dedicated to God, either by position of birth or by you deciding that you want to sacrifice it for a, a shalomim or a todah, which is a barbecue in God's presence with all your friends, once you've decided that that's the sheep that's going to be the todah, that sheep then becomes holy and is no longer common. You can't use it for any other purpose. Holy and common are orthogonal, as I say, to clean and unclean. Clean, unclean, holy, and common, none of those have anything to do with sin. Sin is not involved in this discussion at all, unless you get them mixed up. And if you get them mixed up, then you've sinned. But everybody during his life or her life goes in and out of being clean and unclean. Men and women, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, everybody. So, for example, if... Your Uncle Newton dies, and you've got to take care of the body and so forth. You are now unclean. You have done nothing wrong. You're not sinful. There's no connotation of sin with clean and unclean, contrary to what much of the church believes. Same thing with holy and common. Unless you get them confused and use one for a purpose that is not allowed, there's no sin involved. And no virtue either. It's just simply categories. And the idea, of course, that they shall act as judges and they shall judge according to the Torah. And that's a big deal. One of the reasons that they got sent to Babylon and to Assyria is because the priests weren't doing this. They weren't teaching it properly and they weren't enforcing it. So once the people who were charged with keeping this system going started slipping, 
then the whole nation followed. And what then happened, of course, is you wind up up to your hips and hairy Babylonians. As we talked about on Shabbat, Sabbaths are a big deal. For those of you who weren't there on Shabbat, I got a five-page email from some guy who was born a Jew and is now a Christian and is saying that people like us are Judaizers and that's heretical and we're sinful and on and on and on. And one of the things I did is I channeled my inner Ron Dart. One of the things that Dart says, and he said it better than I did, so I'm quoting him, is entirely throughout the Tanakh, keeping the Sabbath is a big deal. It's one of the major signs between God and Israel. And as I read to you from Isaiah 56, it's also a big deal for the nations because the nations who are joined to the Lord and who keep the Sabbaths are going to be welcome in God's house. The passage where my house is a house of prayer for all nations, that's the Isaiah passage that Yeshua gets that from. And the thing that allows these people to come into the house of the Lord is Sabbath keeping. So Sabbaths are not a Jewish thing, they're a God thing. One of the things that Ron Dart said is they are such a big deal that if somehow the Messiah had changed the system so that the Sabbath was now on Sunday, it would have required some explicit explanation and some explicit reasons. In other words, it wasn't something that could just sort of slide in there because it is such a big deal. And what has happened, of course, is the church has just sort of slid it in there under various bogus excuses. Call it the Lord's Day, call it, some of them call it the Sabbath, it's not. And what the, the Sunday church has done is they've gone away from the Sabbath. They, Sabbath means nothing to them anymore. And that's a big deal. So, 25. They shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. However, for father or mother or son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, they may defile themselves. After he has become clean, he shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. Now that's an abbreviated version of what happens back in Leviticus 21. And it's incomplete. First off, for a regular duty priest, he may become unclean for a close relative. If you go over to Leviticus 21, down to verse 10, the priest who is chief among his brothers, in other words, the high priest, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garment, she shall not let his hair of his head hang loose or tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies or make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. So the high priest has got more stringent rules than just regular priests do. So a regular duty priest that's just doing stuff in the temple, if his father, mother, sister, whatever dies... He can do what's necessary, but then he must reconsecrate himself. And that process takes a week. It takes a week for anybody. And at the end of that, he's got to bring a sacrifice. So it's not only very inconvenient, it's expensive. Because you've got to come up with a sheep. 
That should take you back, of course, to the story of the Good Samaritan. Because remember, you got three guys that go past this fellow that has been knocked down and is lying on the road, possibly dead. First it's a priest, then it gets a Levite, and then it becomes a Samaritan. Three people. One of the things about the priest is the priests very often lived in Jericho and would come up that road for their duty stint in the temple. And they would spend two weeks on duty and then go home until their next rotation. During the time they were in the temple, they were ritually clean so that they could do all the stuff that they had to do. So this priest is in a state of ritual cleanness. If he walks up to this guy, and this guy is either A, dead, or expires as he's looking at him, now the priest is unclean. And what that means is he has got to be repurified. And that process takes a week, and it costs him a sheep. So the priest has got every reason in the world to just assume that, not my job. And so he does. And of course, the Levite, seeing the priest go by, figures, cool, that's okay. And he keeps going as well. And then finally, the Samaritan is the one that stops and has compassion. But if you don't understand what's going on here with priests and dead bodies, you'll miss a lot of that in the Good Samaritan. Verse 28, this shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all the firstfruits of all kinds and of every offering of all kinds from all your offerings shall belong to the priests. You shall also give to the priest the first of your dough, that a blessing may rest on your house. The priest shall not eat of anything, whether bird or beast, that has died of itself or is torn by a wild animal. All of those are Leviticus. There are a couple of things different, but they're minor. So now I have got on the screen behind me a graphic. In scripture here, it's going to be in cubits, but back there it's in miles. You have to do the conversion in your head. Chapter 45. When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long and 20,000 cubits broad. It shall be holy throughout its whole extent. Of this, a square plot of 500 cubits by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary, with 50 cubits for an open space around it. On my graphic back there, the sanctuary is that little tiny dark square in the middle. As you're looking at that, what you see is a map of Israel, and then you have a zoom out with this circle. And the zoom out is the holy region, which is 8.3 miles on a side. And as I say, that's uh, 25,000 cubits, which is 12,500 yards. And so that turns out to be 8.3 miles. So it's 8.3 by 6 miles. But dead smack in the middle, there's a place called the priest portion. In the middle of that is the sanctuary. And by the way, for people out in streaming land or podcast land, 
Just look up the Millennial Temple and there are lots and lots of diagrams on the internet. Verse 3, and from this measured district you shall measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad, which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister him. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. Another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, shall be for the Levites who minister at the temple as their possession for cities to live in. Alongside the portion set apart as the holy district, you shall assign for the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits broad and 25,000 cubits long. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. The thing that I find interesting about this millennial arrangement here is you remember going back to Jacob's blessing of his sons where he says Simeon and Levi are angry and I won't be joined to their anger so I want them scattered in Israel. And of course the rabbinic take on that is it's like pepper. Pepper scattered over your eggs really tastes good. A whole tablespoonful of pepper is not good. And the Levites redeem themselves at the unfortunate instant of the golden calf. So they become the teachers and they become scattered throughout the land and there are Levite cities throughout the land. This is total speculation. There don't seem to be Levite cities. I'm surmising the Levites, when they came back earlier on in Ezekiel here, God said, you are not going to have the high and exalted status you once had. You're going to be menial labor in the temple because you didn't do what I told you. And what I don't know is whether or not he says, all right, scattering you throughout Israel didn't work. So let's put you all here in a wad where I can keep track of you, or the priests can keep track of you, or the king can keep track of you. I don't know if that's the case, but it is different. And the reason for that that I just gave is entirely speculation, maybe entirely incorrect. So down to verse 7. And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district, alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and in the east, corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. You all remember that Royalty in Israel was an afterthought, and he was not pleased at all when they decided to set up a kingdom. What was set up originally were judges, tribes, essentially God was their king, and he specifically says so. And by the way, that's the definition of a theocracy. God is the king, not the priests are kings. So that was what he originally set up. And Israel said, no, 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 we want a king. And he says, well, what's going to happen if you get a king is the king is going to take the best of your produce and give it to his ministers. He's going to take your young men and draft them into the army. He's going to take your young women and bring them in there to be cooks and servants and maids and all that kind of stuff. The whole point is this guy is going to set himself up a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy is going to 
drain things, and the king is going to become an entity to himself, as opposed to one of you who lives among you. And that's what happens, of course. And what you wind up having is bureaucracies and all of the normal palace intrigue and palace politics that you have in any other royal court. And what eventually happens is they go off into the weeds. The kings very often lead them into apostasy, and it just doesn't work very well. The whole point here is the only thing that a king has to sustain himself is being a parasite on the people. You know, that parasite can be a useful parasite. If you've got a good king and he does well, then certainly the support for that king, which comes from the people, is a benefit. But essentially a king per se is not productive. So what do we have here? We're going to give the king his own chunk of ground. And we are going to give the king his own source of income. And the king is no longer going to have to be a parasite on the people. That's what's being said here. Because one of the things that happens with governments and bureaucracies, no matter how well-intentioned, is they start to regard the resources of the country as theirs, and they start to take more and more and more and more. And that's what we're seeing ourselves. So what God does here in this case is, okay, we got a king, it's going to be David. He's going to be the king, and we're going to give him his own chunk of land. And so he's got his own base of productivity, he's got his own source of wealth, and we're going to, in a minute here, describe the tax system. And it's going to be a tax system that's set up by God, not by the king. So everything is set And I believe this is a reaction to how they went off the rails the first time. Verse 9, thus says the Lord God, Enough, O prince of Israel, put away violence and oppression, and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. Well, where have we seen a king evict his people? Ahab had somebody kill, or actually Jezebel did, but his court had somebody killed to evict because he wanted a vineyard. And what is being said here is, don't do that stuff anymore. I'm giving you your own piece of land. That's it. Verse 10. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. One of the things that governments do is they inflate. Somebody said, good job, Democrats. You brought back gas lines. You brought back inflation. All at once. Took several presidents to do this before, and you got them all going at once. The point is, governments always overspend, and they get themselves out of debt by inflating the currency, which destroys the middle class. Economics 101. It's not controversial. So what is saying here in verse 10, you shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. Your weights and measures shall be just. You can't inflate them. You also have back in the Torah where it's talking to merchants. You won't have two sets of weights. A light set when you sell and a heavy set when you buy. And what it's saying here of government 
is you will not inflate things. So an ephah and a bath shall be of the same measure. The bath contains one-tenth of an omer, and the ephah one-tenth of an omer. An omer shall be the standard measure. The shekel shall be 20 geras, 20 shekels plus 25 shekels plus 15 shekels shall be your mina. I have no idea why they said it that way. But it's 60 shekels to the mina is the way it works out. don't know why we needed all those words, but there's a reason for it. 13. This is the offering that you shall make, you being the king. This is the offering that you shall make. One-sixth of an ephah from each omer of wheat, one-sixth of an ephah from each omer of barley, and as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath for each core, the core like the omer contains ten baths, and one sheep from every flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. In other words, the government is being given resources and they are expected to use those resources to minister to the people, which includes offering sacrifices on the behalf of the people. God says, I'm giving you resources here. I expect you then to turn around as the government and I expect you to make atonement for the people on their behalf. Verse 16. All the people of the land shall be obligated to give this offering to the prince of Israel. What we have just described is a fixed tax system. And it's based on production. If you get this many omers of wheat, this proportion is taxed. Same thing with sheep and everything else. And then from that, the prince is not expected to say, wow, look at all the stuff I got. The prince is expected then to turn around and offer sacrifices on the people's behalf. Verse 17, it shall be the prince's duty to furnish the bird offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, and the Sabbath, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. You get the system that's being set up here. Thus says the Lord God. On the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple, the four corners of the ledge of the altar, the post of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance, so you shall make atonement for the temple. This is a centralized shotgun, if you will, atonement. Somebody out there sinned. All right, we're going to do this. 21. On the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover, and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. Notice who provides the offering, who bears the expense of it. And on the seventh days of the festival, he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish on each of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering. And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull, an ephah for each ram, and a hen of oil to each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, and for the seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings and for the oil. Everybody see what's going on? 
the prince is paying for all the sacrifices. The prince gets taxes. One sheep out of every 200 comes in as tax. So much oil, so much grain, so forth, based on production. That all comes to the prince. The prince then turns around and he uses those taxes to give to the priests for the sacrifices that are to be made for the whole nation. So the prince bears the expense of the sacrificial system. The priests and the Levites execute the sacrifices, but the prince pays for it. What God says is, first off, I'm giving your own plot of land. So you're not going to be tempted, theoretically, to go out and steal somebody else's land. You got your own land now, which is the source of wealth. So that land is for you, and you can grow whatever you want to on it, and you can make whatever income you can make off of your land. That's thing one. Thing two is, since you are the government, what will happen is people will be taxed. Those taxes will come to you. And here's how you use those taxes, which is to say you furnish the expenses. So you furnish the bulls and the wheat and the oil and the lambs and the goats and everything else. They come out of that stuff that was collected to you, and those sacrifices are then on behalf of the whole nation because you're the leader and we're doing it on behalf of the nation comment was, so does each family then still have to tithe and do all that kind of stuff as they did before? And the short answer to that is I have no idea. It's not talked about here. Bureaucracies have as their prime directive growth and survival. So as soon as a bureaucracy gets set up, it immediately begins thinking about how can I grow and how can I survive? So bureaucracies don't ever die. The closest things to immortality that exists, which is why God periodically sends everybody into exile so we get out of the system. What's set up here, if you will, is a non-growing bureaucracy. This is the amount of land you got. These are the resources that you got. This is how you use part of those resources. I'm sure that the amount of tax that comes in is going to be in excess of the sacrificial requirements. In fact, as we get down here in the next chapter, and we're not going to do that tonight, the people are going to bring their own offerings, and I think they are mostly peace offerings and thank offerings, which are not sin offerings. People will bring individual sacrifices, but one of the things that it will say down here is when the prince is offering his sacrifice, and I had to read three translations before it made sense. Translation that finally made sense to me is, you know, you got a portion of oil that grows with, with a lamb, he shall offer as much of this as he wants. The English Standard, King Jimmy, all the rest of them, a really awkward translation. Tanakh, that made sense to me. Not a fixed amount, it's as much as you want, which is to say, as you are blessed. Great question. First off, the taxation is based on economic production. So if you've got 600 sheep, you come up with three. That's the tax. You get 6,000 sheep, you come up with 30. That's the tax. So that's based on production. 
The other thing about this here is it doesn't say anything about welfare back to the people. What the government is providing here is leadership, military leadership, making sure that the tabernacle or the temple get properly serviced and those kinds of things, but there isn't any mention here of welfare. Kay and I are watching a very good series on Hillsdale College, Victor Davis Hanson on citizenship. Depressing as hell, but it's quite a good study. And the idea of citizenship goes all the way back to Greece. And the idea was that you had three classes of people. The poor people who were looking to somebody to support them. Very often that becomes the government. You had the rich people who were trying to manipulate the government for their own benefit. They've got a lot of resources, so they were trying to buy legislation and stuff that was to their benefit. You have the middle class that doesn't depend on government for anything except organizing things like defenses and roads and stuff like that. And a large middle class ensures citizenship. What every dictator tries to do, and what is being tried right now with us, is elimination of the middle class. You want a large, lower class that depends on government, and you want a smaller elite class that runs government, and the people in between you want to get rid of because they're independent, and they don't depend on you. Now, our system has gotten to the point where it's so bastardized that lots of the middle class does, and that was the reason for things like Social Security and so forth, to in fact get the middle class dependent on government because they're less independent when they are. So what we have here, at least in theory, is the middle class, quote-unquote, pays taxes according to economic production. The prince then provides leadership, military defense, etc., makes sure that the temple is properly serviced and bears all the expense of the sacrifices. And there isn't an incentive there to grow. Now, people being what they are, I don't know if that's the case, but that's the way it's set up. It's just like the tribal system that was set up after the Exodus under Joshua. That is the freest of all possible government systems. Local government by elders. You come together as a group when you need to defend each other. The only government that you had were judges. And if a judge is doing properly, if two of you can get along, a judge is not in your face. It's only when two of you can't get along that you have to involve a judge. So as long as you can get along with your neighbor, you have a government that leaves everybody alone. That's what God originally set up. And people being human, we screwed it up. But then we screwed up the monarchy. And then we screwed up the exile. I mean, you know, it's, there isn't any system that works perfectly because it has to deal with humans. But God keeps trying. 